Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of P.G. Wodehouse's How Right You Are, Jeeves. I'm your narrator, J.J. Campanella. How Right You Are is the sequel to Jeeves and the Feudal Spirit, as much as sequels ever mean anything in Wodehouse's world. The novel was first published in early 1960 under the How Right You Are title, and then a few months later in the U.K. under the title Jeeves in the Offing. The plot of the book is as convoluted as ever with Wodehouse. When Jeeves goes on vacation, Bertie is invited to his aunt's country estate once again at Brinkley Court. However, he is not the only guest. The story reads something like a confused mashup of Edgar Allan Poe and Monty Python. Wodehouse is, of course, the master of this sort of demented writing. Add to the usual mix a certain Bobby Wickham, a former dreaded headmaster with a grudge, a kleptomaniac playboy who reads poetry and rescues drowning dachshunds, and the loony doctor, Sir Roderick Glossop, incognito as a butler named Swordfish, and you have a tale of true genius. We know that you will enjoy this. And now, how right you are, Jeeves. Chapter 1 Jeeves placed the sizzling eggs and bee on the breakfast table, and Reginald Kipper Herring and I licked the lips, squared our elbows, and got down to it. A lifelong body of mine, this herring, linked to me by what are called imperishable memories. Years ago, when striplings, he and I had done a stretch together at Malvern House, Bramley-on-Sea, the preparatory school conducted by that Prince of Stinkers, Aubrey Upjohn, M.A., and had frequently stood side by side in the Upjohn study, awaiting the receipt of six of the juiciest from a cane of the type that biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder as the fellow said. So we were, you might say, rather like a couple of old sweats who had fought together shoulder to shoulder on Crispin's Day, if I've got the name right. The plot du jour, having gone down the hatch, accompanied by some fluid ounces of strengthening coffee, I was about to reach for the marmalade when I heard the telephone tootling out in the hall and rose to attend to it. Bertram Worcester's residence, I said, having connected with the instrument. Worcester in person at this end... Oh, hello, I added, for the voice that boomed over the wire was that of Mrs. Thomas Portarrington Travers of Brinkley Court, Market Snodsbury, near Droitwich, or putting it another way, my good and deserving Aunt Dahlia. A very hearty pip-pip to you, old ancestor, I said, well pleased, for she is a woman with whom it is always a privilege to chew the fat. And a rousing toodaloo to you, you young blot on the landscape, she replied cordially. I'm surprised to find you up as early as this, or have you just got in from a night on the tiles? I hasten to rebut this slur. Certainly not. Nothing of that description whatsoever. I've been upping with the lark this last week to keep Kipper Herring company. He's staying with me till he can get to his new flat. Remember old Kipper? I brought him down to Brinkley one summer. Chap with cauliflower ear? I know who you mean. Looks like Jack Dempsey. That's right. Far more indeed than Jack Dempsey does. He's on the staff of the Thursday Review, a periodical of which you may or may not be a reader, and has to clock in at the office at daybreak. No doubt when I apprise him of your call, he will send you his love, for I know he holds you in high esteem. The perfect hostess he often describes you as. Well, it's nice to hear your voice again, old flesh and blood. How's everything down at Market Snarsbury Way? Oh, we're jogging along. But I'm not speaking from Brinkley, 
I'm in London. Till when? Driving back this afternoon. I'll give you lunch. Sorry, can't manage it. I'm putting on the nose bag with Sir Roderick Glossop. This surprised me. The eminent brain specialist to whom she alluded was a man I would not have cared to lunch with myself. Our relations having been on the stiff side since the night at Lady Wickham's place in Hertfordshire, when acting on the advice of my hostess's daughter Roberta, I had punctured his hot water bottle with a darning needle in the small hours of the morning. Quite unintentionally, of course. I had planned to puncture the HWB of his nephew, Toppy Glossop, with whom I had a feud on, and unknown to me they had changed rooms. Just one of those unfortunate misunderstandings. What on earth are you doing that for? I asked. Why shouldn't I? He's paying. I saw a point. A penny saved is a penny earned, and all that sort of thing. But I continued to be surprised. It amazed me that Aunt Dahlia, presumably a free agent, should have selected this very formidable loony doctor to chew the midnight chop with. However, one of the first lessons life teaches us is that ants will be ants. So I merely shrugged a couple of shoulders. Well, it's up to you, of course, but it seems a rash act. Did you come to London just to revel with Glossop? No, I'm here to collect my new butler and take him home with me. New butler? What's become of Seppings? He's gone. I clicked my tongue. I was very fond of the major domo in question, having enjoyed many a port in his pantry, and this news saddened me. No, really, I said. Too bad. I thought he looked a little frail when I last saw him. Well, that's how it goes. All flesh is grass, I often say. He has gone to Borgnor Regis for his holiday. I unclicked the tongue. Oh, I see. That puts a different complexion on the matter. Odd how all these pillars of the home seem to be dashing away on toots these days. It's like what Jeeves was telling me about the great race movements of the Middle Ages. Jeeves starts his holiday this morning. He's off to Hearn Bay for the shrimping. And I feel like that bird in the poem who lost his pet gazelle or whatever the animal was. I don't know what I'm going to do without him. I'll tell you what you're going to do. Do you have a clean shirt? Several. And a toothbrush? Two, both of the finest quality. Then pack them. You're coming to Brinkley tomorrow. The gloom which always envelops Bertram Worcester like a fog when Jeeves is about to take his annual vacation lightened perceptibly. There are few things I find more agreeable than a sojourn at Aunt Dahlia's rural lair. Picturesque scenery, gravel soil, main drainage, and above all, the superb French chefing of her French chef, Anatole, God's gift to the gastric juices. A full hand, as you might put it. What an admirable suggestion, I said. You solve all my problems and bring the bluebird out of the hat. Rely on me. You will observe me bowling up in the Worcester sports model tomorrow afternoon, my hair in a braid and a song on my lips. My presence will, I feel sure, stimulate Anatole to new heights of endeavour. Got anybody else staying at the old snake pit? Five inmates in all. Five? I resume my tongue clicking. Golly, Uncle Tom must be frothing at the mouth a bit, I said, for I knew the old buster's distaste for guests in the house. Even a single weekender is sometimes enough to make him drain the bitter cup. Tom's not there. He's gone to Harrogate with cream. You mean lumbago? I don't mean lumbago, I mean cream. Homer cream. Big American tycoon, 
who is visiting to these shores. He suffers from ulcers, and his medicine man has ordered him to take the waters at Harrogate. Tom has gone with him to hold his hand and listen to him while he tells him how filthy the stuff tastes. Antagonistic? What? I mean altruistic. You're probably not familiar with the word, but it's one I've heard Jeeves use. It's what you say of a fellow who gives selfless service, not counting the cost. Selfless service, my foot. Tom's in the middle of a very important business deal with cream. If it goes through, he'll make a packet, free of income tax. So he's playing him up like a Hollywood yes-man. I gave an intelligent nod, though this, of course, was wasted on her because she couldn't see me. I could readily understand my uncle by marriage's mental processes. T. Portarlington Travers is a man who has accumulated the pieces of eight in sackfuls, but he is always more than willing to shove a bit extra away behind the brick in the fireplace, feeling, and rightly, that every little bit added to what you've got makes just a little bit more. And if there's one thing that's right up his street, it's not paying income tax. He grudges every penny the government nicks him for. That is why, when kissing me goodbye, he urged me with tears in his eyes to lush Mrs. Cream and her son Willie up and treat them like royalty. So they're at Brinkley, dug into the woodwork. Willie, you say? Short for Wilbert. I mused. Willie Cream. The name was familiar somehow. I seem to have heard it or seen it in the papers somewhere. But it eluded me. Adela Cream writes mystery stories. Are you a fan of hers? No? Well, start boning up on them directly you arrive, because every little bit helps. I've bought a complete set. They're very good. I shall be delighted to run an eye over her material, I said, for I am what they call an A-something of novels of suspense. Aficionado, would that be it? I could always do with another corpse or two, I said. We have established, then, that among the inmates are this Mrs. Cream and her son Wilbert. Who are the other three? Well, there's Lady Wickham's daughter, Roberta. I started violently, as if some unseen hand had goosed me. What? Bobby Wickham? Oh, my gosh! Why the agitation? Do you know her? You bet I know her! I begin to see. Is she one of the gaggle of girls you've been engaged to? Not actually, no. We were never engaged, but that was merely because she wouldn't meet me halfway. Turned you down then, did she? Yes, thank goodness. Why, thank goodness, she's a one-girl beauty chorus. She doesn't try the eyes, I agree. A pippin if there ever was one. Very true, but is being a pippin everything? What price the soul? Isn't her soul like mother makes? Far from it, much below par, what I could tell you. But no, let it go. Painful subject. I'd been about to mention fifty-seven or so reasons why the prudent operator, if he valued his peace of mind, deemed it best to stay well away from that red-headed menace under any advisement, but realized that at a moment when I was wanting to get back to the marmalade, it would occupy too much time. It would be enough to say I had long since come out of the ether and was fully cognizant of the fact that in declining to fall in with my suggestion that we should start rounding up clergymen and bridesmaids, the Beazel had rendered me a signal service, and I'll tell you why. When Aunt Dahlia, describing this young blister as a one-girl beauty chorus, had called her shots perfectly correct, 
Her outer crust was indeed of a nature to cause those beholding it to rock back on their heels with a startled whistle. But while equipped with eyes like twin stars, hairs ruddier than the cherry, and all the fixings, this B. Wickham had also the disposition and general outlook on life of a ticking bomb. In her society you always had the uneasy feeling that something was likely to go off at any moment with a pop. You never knew what she was going to do next, or into what murky dips of soup she would carelessly plunge you. Miss Wickham, sir. Jeeves had once said to me warningly at the time when the fever was at its height, Lacks seriousness. She is volatile and frivolous. I would always hesitate to recommend as a life partner a young lady with quite such a vivid shade of red hair. Her judgment was sound. I have already mentioned that with her subtle wiles this girl had induced me to sneak into Roderick Glossop's sleeping apartment and apply the darning needle to his hot water bottle. And that was comparatively mild going for her. In a word, Roberta, daughter of Lady Wickham of Skeldings Hall, Hertz, and the late Sir Cuthbert, was pure dynamite and better kept at a distance by all those who aimed at leading the peaceful life. The prospect of being immured with her in the same house, with all the facilities a country house affords an enterprising girl for landing her nearest and dearest in the Mulligatawney, made me singularly dubious about the shape of things to come. I was tottering under this blow when the old relative administered another, and it was a haymaker. And then there's Aubrey Upjohn and his stepdaughter, Phyllis Mills, she said. That's the lot. What's the matter with you? Have you got asthma? I took her to be alluding to the sharp gasp which had escaped my lips, and I must confess that it had come out not unlike the last words of a dying duck. But I felt perfectly justified in gasping. A weaker man would have howled like a banshee. There floated into my mind something Kipper Herring had once said to me. You know, Bertie... He had said, in a philosophical mood, We have much to be thankful for in this life of ours, you and I. However rough the going, there is one sustaining thought to which we can hold. The storm clouds may lower and the horizon grow dark. We may get a nail in our shoe and be caught in the rain without an umbrella. We may come down to breakfast and find that someone else has taken the brown egg. But at least we have the consolation of knowing we shall never see Aubrey, God help us, Upjohn again. Always remember this in times of despondency. He said, and I always had. And now here the bounder was, bobbing up right in my midst, enough to make the stoutest heart go into his dining duck routine. Aubrey Upjohn, I quivered. You mean my Aubrey Upjohn? That's the one. Soon after you made your escape from his chain gang, he married Jane Mills, a friend of mine with a colossal amount of money. She died leaving a daughter. I'm the daughter's godmother. Upjohn's retired now and going in for politics. The hot tip is that the boys in the back room are going to make him run as the conservative candidate in the market Snarsbury division at the next by-election. What a thrill it will be for you meeting him again. Or does the prospect scare you, Bertie? Certainly not. We Worcesters are intrepid. But what on earth did you invite him to Brinkley for? I didn't. I only wanted Phyllis, but he came along too. You should have bunged him out. I didn't have the heart to. Weak, very weak. 
Besides, I needed him in my business. He's going to present the prizes at Market Snodsbury Grammar School. We've been caught short, as usual, and somebody has got to make a speech on ideals and the great world outside to those blasted boys. So he fits in nicely. I believe he's a very fine speaker. His only trouble is that he's stymied unless he has his speech with him and can read it. Calls it referring to his notes. Phyllis told me that. She types the stuff for him. A thoroughly low trick, I said severely. Even I, who never soared above a yeoman's wedding song at a village concert, wouldn't have the crust to face my public unless I'd taken the trouble to memorise the words. Though actually, with a yeoman's wedding song, it is possible to get by quite comfortably if you keep on singing Ding Dong, Ding Dong, Ding Dong, I hurry along. In short... I would have spoken further, but at this point, after urging me to put a sock in it and giving me a kindly word of warning not to step on any banana skins, she rang off. Chapter 2 I came away from the telephone on what practically amounted to leaden feet. Here I was feeling was a nice bit of box fruit. Bobby Wickham, with a tendency to stir things up, and with each new day to discover some new way of staggering civilization would by herself have been bad enough. Add Aubrey up, John, and the mixture became too rich. I don't know if Kipper, when I rejoined him, noticed that my brow was sicklied over with a pale cast of thought, as I have heard Jeeves put it. Probably not, for he was tucking into toast and marmalade at the moment. But it was. As had happened so often in the past, I was conscious of an impending doom. Exactly what form this would take, of course, I was unable to say. It might be one thing or it might be another, but a voice seemed to whisper to me that somehow, at some not distant date, Bertram was slated to get it in the gizzard. That was Aunt Dahlia, Kipper, I said. Bless her jolly old heart, he responded. One of the very best, and you can quote me as saying so. I shall never forget those happy days at Brinkley, and shall be glad at any time that suits her to cadge another invitation. Is she up in London? Till this afternoon. We will fill her to the brim with rich foods, of course. No, she's got a lunch date. She's browsing with Sir Roderick Glossop, the loony doctor. You don't know him, do you? Only from hearing you speak of him. A tough egg, I gather. One of the toughest. He was the chap, wasn't he, who found the twenty-four cats in your bedroom. Twenty-three, I corrected. I like to get things right. And they were not my cats. They'd been deposited there by my cousins. Claude and Eustace, but I found them difficult to explain. He's a rather bad listener. I hope I shan't find him at Brinkley, too. Are you going to Brinkley? Tomorrow afternoon. You'll enjoy that. Well, shall I? The point is a very moot one. You're crazy. Think of Anatole, those dinners of his. Is the name of the Perry who stood disconsolate at the gate of Eden familiar to you? I've heard Jeeves mention her. Well, that's how I feel when I remember Anatole's dinners. When I reflect that every night he's dishing them up and I'm not there, I come within a very little of breaking down. What gives you the idea that you won't enjoy yourself? Brinkley Court's an earthly paradise. In many respects, yes, but life there at the moment has its drawbacks. There are far too much of that where every prospect pleases and only man is vile stuff buzzing around for my taste. Who do you think is staying at the old Doss house? Aubrey up, John. It was plain I'd shaken him. His eyes widened, 
and an astonished piece of toast fell from his grasp. Hold up, John. You're kidding. No, he's there, himself, not a picture. And it seems only yesterday that you were buoying me up by telling me I'd never have to see him again. The storm clouds may lower, you said, if you recollect. But how does he come to be at Brinkley? Precisely what I asked, the aged relative, and she had an explanation that seems to cover the facts. Apparently, after we took our eye off him, he married a friend of hers, one Jane Mills, and acquired a stepdaughter, Phyllis Mills, whose godmother Aunt Dahlia is. The ancestor invited the Mills girl to Brinkley, and up John came along for the ride. I see. I don't wonder you're trembling like a leaf, then. Not like a leaf, exactly, but yes. I think you might describe me as trembling. One remembers that fishy eye of his. And the wide, bare upper lip. It won't be pleasant having to gaze at that across the dinner table. Still, you're like Phyllis. Do you know her? We met out in Switzerland last Christmas. Slap her on the back, will you? And give her my regards. Nice girl, though goofy. She never told me she was related to Upjohn. She would naturally keep a thing like that dark. Yes, one sees that. Just as one would have tried to keep it dark if one had been mixed up in any way with Palmer the Poisoner. What ghastly garbage that was he used to fling at us when we were serving up our sentence at Marvin House. Remember the sausages on Sunday? And the boiled mutton with caper sauce? And the margarine, recalling this last... It's going to be a strain having to sit and watch him getting outside pounds of the best country butter. Oh, Jeeves, I said, as he shimmered in to clear the table. You never went to a preparatory school on the south coast of England, did you? No, sir. I was privately educated. Ah, then you wouldn't understand. Mr. Herring and I were discussing our former prep school peak, Aubrey Upjohn, M.A. By the way, Kipper, Aunt Dahlia was telling me something about him which I never knew before and which ought to expose him to the odium of all thinking men. You remember those powerful end-of-term addresses he used to make to us? Well, he couldn't have made them if he hadn't had the stuff in his grasp all typed out so that he could read it. Without his notes, as he calls them, he's a spent force. Revolting that, Jeeves, don't you think? Many auditors are, I believe, similarly handicapped, sir. Too tolerant, Jeeves, far too tolerant. You must guard against this lax outlook. However, the reason I mention Hopchon to you is that he has come back into my life, or will be coming back in about two ticks. He's staying at Brinkley, and I shall be going there tomorrow. That was Aunt Dahlia on the phone just now, and she demands my presence. Will you pack a few necessaries in a suitcase or so? Very good, sir. When are you leaving on your Hearn Bay jaunt? I was thinking of taking a train this morning, sir, but if you would prefer that I remain till tomorrow... No, no, perfectly all right. Start as soon as you like. What's the joke, I asked, as the door closed behind him, for I observed that Kipper was chuckling softly. Not an easy thing to do, of course, when your mouth's full of toast and marmalade, but he was doing it. I was thinking of Upjohn, he said. I was amazed. It seemed incredible to me that anyone who had done time at Malvern House, Bramley on Sea, could chuckle, softly or otherwise, when letting the mind dwell on that outstanding menace was like laughing lightly when contemplating one of those horrors from outer space which are so much with us at the moment on the motion picture screen. I envy you, Bertie. He went on, continuing to chuckle. You have a wonderful treat in store. You're going to be present at the breakfast table when Upjohn opens his copy of this week's Thursday Review. 
and starts to skim through the pages devoted to comments on current literature. I should explain that among the books that recently arrived at the office was a slim volume from his pen dealing with the preparatory school and giving it an enthusiastic build-up. The formative years which we spent there, he said, were the happiest of our life. Gadzooks! He little knew that his brainchild would be given to one of the old lags of Malvern House to review. I'll tell you something, Bertie, that every young man ought to know. Never be a stinker, because if you are, though you may flourish for a time like a green bay tree, sooner or later retribution will overtake you. I need scarcely tell you that I ripped the stuffing out of the beastly little brochure. The thought of those sausages on Sunday filled me with the righteous fury of a juvenile. Of a who? Nobody you know, before your time. I seemed inspired. Normally, I suppose, a book like that would get a line and a half in the other recent publications column, but I gave it 600 words of impassioned prose. How extraordinarily fortunate you are to be in a position to watch his face as he reads them. How do you know he'll read them? He's a subscriber. There was a letter from him on the correspondence page a week or two ago, in which he specifically stated he had been one for years. Did you sign the thing? No. The editor is not keen on underlings advertising their names. And it was really hot stuff. Red hot. So eye him closely at the breakfast table. Mark his reaction. I confidently expect the blush of shame and remorse to mantle his cheek. The only catch is that I don't come down to breakfast when I'm at Brinkley. Still, I suppose I could make a special effort. Do so. You will find it well worthwhile. Said Kipper, and shortly afterwards popped off to resume the earning of the weekly envelope. He had been gone about twenty minutes when Jeeves came in, bowler hat in hand to say goodbye. A solemn moment, taxing our self-control to the utmost. However, we both kept the upper lip stiff, and after we had kidded back and forth for a while, he started to withdraw. He had reached the door when it suddenly occurred to me that he might have inside information about this Wilbert Cream of whom Aunt Dahlia had spoken. I have generally found that he knows everything about everyone. Oh, Jeeves, I said, half a jiffy. Sir. Something I want to ask you. It seems that among my fellow guests at Brinkley will be a Mrs. Homer Cream, wife of an American big butter and egg man, and her son Wilbert, commonly known as Willie, and the name Willie Cream seemed somehow to touch a chord. Rightly or wrongly, I associate it with trips we have taken to New York, but in what connection I haven't the vaguest. Does it ring a bell with you? Why, yes, sir. References to the gentlemen are frequent in the tabloid newspapers of New York notably in the column conducted by Mr. Walter Winchell. He is generally alluded to under the sobriquet of Broadway Willie. Of course, it all comes back to me. He's what they call a playboy. Precisely, sir. Notorious for his escapades. Yes, I've got him placed now. He's the fellow who likes to let off stink bombs in nightclubs, which rather falls under the head of carrying coals to Newcastle and seldom cashes a cheque at his bank without producing a gap and saying, This is a stick-up. And, no, sir, I regret it has for the moment escaped my memory. What has? Some other little something, sir, that I was told regarding Mr. Cream. Should I recall it, I will communicate with you. Yes, do. One wants the complete picture. Oh, gosh! Sir. Nothing, Jeeves. A thought has just floated into my mind. All right, push off or you'll miss your train. 
Good luck to your shrimping net. And I'll tell you what the thought was that it floated. I have already indicated my qualms at the prospect of being cooped up in the same house with Bobby Wickham and Aubrey Upjohn, for who could tell what the harvest might be? If in addition to these two heavies I was also to be cheek and jowl with a New York playboy apparently afflicted with bats in the belfry, it began to look as if this visit would prove too much for Bertram's frail strength, and for an instant I toyed with the idea of sending a telegram of regret and oiling out. Then I remembered Anatole's cooking, and was strong again. Nobody who has once tasted them would wantonly deprive himself of that wizard's smoked offerings. Whatever spiritual agonies I might be about to undergo at Brinkley Court, Market Snodsbury, residents there would at least put me several supreme de foie gras, or champagne, or mignot de poulet, petit duc, ahead of the game. Nevertheless, it would be paltering with the truth to say that I was at ease as I thought of what lay before me in darkest Worcestershire, and the hand that lit the after-breakfast gasper shook a little bit. At this moment of nervous tension, the telephone suddenly gave tongue again, causing me to skip like the high hills. As if the last trump had sounded, I went to the instrument, all a twitter. Some species of butler appeared at the other end. Mr. Worcester? On the spot. Good morning, sir. Her ladyship wishes to speak to you. Lady Wickham, sir. Here is Mr. Worcester, my lady. And Bobby's mother came on the air. I should have mentioned, by the way, that during the above exchange of ideas with the butler, I had been aware of a distant sobbing, like background music, and it now became apparent that it was from the larynx of the relic of the late Sir Cuthbert that it was proceeding. There was a short intermission before she got the vocal cords working, and while I was waiting for her to start the dialogue, I found myself wrestling with two problems that presented themselves. The first, what on earth is this woman ringing me up for? The second, having got the number, why does she sob? It was problem A that puzzled me particularly, for ever since that hot water bottle episode, my relations with this parent of Bobby's had been on the strained side. It was indeed an open secret that my standing with her was practically that of a rat of the underworld. I had had this from Bobby, whose impersonation of her mother discussing me with sympathetic cronies had been exceptionally vivid, and I must confess, I wasn't altogether surprised. I mean to say, no hostess extending her hospitality to a friend of her daughter's likes to have the young visitor going about the place puncturing people's hot water bottles and leaving at three in the morning without stopping to say goodbye. Yes, I could see her side of the thing all right, and I found it extraordinary that she should be seeking me out on the telephone in this fashion. Feeling as she did so allergic to Bertram, I wouldn't have thought she'd have phoned me with a ten-foot pole. However, there beyond question she was. Mr. Worcester. Oh, hello, Lady Wickham. Are you there? I put her straight on this point, and she took time out to sob again. Then she spoke in a hoarse, throaty voice, like Tallulah Bankhead, after swallowing a fishbone the wrong way. Is this awful news true? Eh? Oh, dear, 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 dear. I don't quite follow. In this morning's times... I'm pretty shrewd and seemed to me, reading between the lines, that there must have been something in the issue of the Times published that morning that for some reason had upset her. Though why she should have chosen me to tell her troubles to was a mystery not easy to fathom. I was about to institute inquiries in the hopes of spearing a solution when, in addition to the sobbing, she started laughing in a hyena-esque manner, making it clear to my trained ear that she was having hysterics 
and before I could speak there was a dull thud, suggestive of some solid body falling to earth. And when the dialogue was resumed, I found the butler had put himself on as an understudy. Mr. Worcester? Still here. I regret to say that her ladyship has fainted. It was she I heard going bump then. Precisely, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Goodbye. He replaced the receiver and presumably went about his domestic duties, these no doubt including the loosening of the stricken woman's corsets and burning feathers under her nose, leaving me to chew on the situation without further bulletins from the front. It seemed to me the thing to do here was to get hold of the Times and see what it had to offer in the way of enlightenment. It's a paper I don't often look at, preferring for breakfast reading the mirror and the mail, but Jeeves takes it in, and I occasionally borrow his copy with a view of having a shot at the crossword puzzle. It struck me as a possibility that he might have left today's issue in the kitchen, and so it proved. I came back with it, lowered myself into a chair, lit another cigarette, and proceeded to cast an eye over its contents. At a cursory glance, what might be called swoon material appeared to be totally absent from its columns. The Duchess of Something had been opening a bazaar at Wimbledon in the aid of deserving charities. There was an article on salmon fishing on the Y, and a cabinet minister had made a speech about conditions in the cotton industry. But I could see nothing in these items to induce loss of consciousness. Nor did it seem probable that a woman would have passed out cold on reading that Herbert Robinson, 26 of Grove Road, Ponder's End, had been jugged for stealing a pair of green and yellow check trousers. I turned to the cricket news. Had some friend of hers failed a score in yesterday's county matches owing to a doubled LBW decision? It was just after I had run the eye down the births and marriages that I happened to look at engagements, and a moment later I was shooting out of my chair as if a spike had come through its cushioned seat and penetrated my fleshy parts. Jeeves, I yelled, and then remembered that he had long since gone with the wind. A bitter thought, for if ever there was an occasion when his advice and counsel were the essence, then this occasion was that occasion. The best I could do tackling it solo was to utter a hollow G and bury the face in the hands. And though I seemed to hear my public tut-tutting in disapproval of such neurotic behavior, I think the verdict of history will be that the paragraph on which my gaze had rested was more than enough to excuse a spot of face-burying. It ran as follows. Forthcoming marriages. The engagement is announced between Bertram Wilberforce Worcester of Berkeley Mansions, W1, and Roberta, daughter of Lady Wickham of Skeldings Hall, Hertz, and the late Sir Cuthbert Wickham.